Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. Today we're going to talk about Bernard Trevisan, uh, also known as Bernard of Treviso, Bernardos Trevisanas. I think I just picked this guy because he sounds like my name. It, it, you there's, that? there's a connection to Travis. I, I yeah. see it. I see um, it. <laughs> well, so let me explain who we're not going to talk about because this guy, um, he is really famous and also is kind of well-known. But part of that is is that, again, we're dealing with a kind of confused issue of possibly several people with the same name or similar names. So A, a pseudo-Trevisan, maybe, possibly. Possibly. So there's there's Bernard... Bernard Trevisan could refer to one or more Italian alchemists uh, who may or may not be the same person. But then also he's confused with a Bernardo Trevisano from 1652 to 1720 who is a Venetian devoted to languages, mathematics, philosophy, and painting, who we're not talking about, and a Bernardinos Trevisanos from 1506 to 1583, so slightly before, um, who studied arts and medicine at Padua and became professor of logic and medical theory. Which is right down the road from Venice, right? Yeah. So, all, and, so both these guys are close. And we're also not talking about that guy. Okay, well, forget so, him. <laughs> so the guy we're talking about is bef- before both of these two, okay? So this guy's from the 15th century. So it's not entirely clear because, again, it might be more than one person. But we'll just pick the dates, 1406 to 1490. So a good century or almost century and a half before the other two. So that's a good way to remember it, 15th century, not 16th, not 17th. Um, And he was born into a noble family in Padua, okay? So now we know we're talking about the right guy. And this guy spent his entire life, if it even is one person, it still could be more than one person, but um, he spent his entire life and family fortune, as we've seen many times before, in the search of the Philosopher's Stone. So the Trevisan we're following here tonight, we can get a little background on him. His father was a doctor of medicine, so it is probable that Bernard received his initial training in science at home. At the age of 14, he devoted himself to alchemy. Uh, he read his works of Eastern philosophers like Gerber and Rassis. Trevisan augmented his learning with writings of Sacraboso and Rupachisa. He engaged in a long course of reading and praying during this time. Yeah, and I think what's interesting with this guy is that um, he had his family's permission to um, study alchemy. And I think one, one thing I kind of get from, from reading this is that um, his father might have even seen it as an investment. So they had some family wealth, they were nobility, and his father said, you know what, it would be great if I had a son who knew how to make the Philosopher's Stone. That, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm getting here. I, you know, hard to hard to verify that for sure, but but what I am fairly certain about is that his his uh, he did have his family's permission, and they kind of funded his early studies. I mean, he was fourteen, so he you know you needed to have money to to um, study alchemy, as we've seen several times before. So he first worked with a monk of Citeaux named Godfridos Loirier. They attempted for eight years to fashion the philosopher's stone 
out of, and this I've never really heard before, <laughs> but out of hen eggshells and egg yolk purified in horse manure. Now, the horse manure part I've heard. We've talked about got, that many yeah, times. But, but, <laughs> As uh, a key part of alch- alchemical sort of research was the, is, is the dung. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but eggs, eggs, all right. That's, oh, okay. that's a new Interesting. one. So Bernard Trevisan, his name first appears in a manuscript text of the 14th century. That's kind of where we get our, our, our dates as well. And the content of all these works fit well into the 14th century alchemical thought and practice, both the nature of the alchemical doctrines expounded and the authorities or authors that were cited. For example, in reply to Thomas of Bologna, a physician to King Charles V of France, this is around 1380, um, Bernard maintained against Tomas and the the uh, dominant 14th century theory that gold is made solely from quicksilver or mercury, although the process might be hastened by the addition of a small amount of gold. Bernard rejected the sulfur-mercury theory of the preceding century. He asserted that the mercury contained within itself for four elements, that is, the air and fire and sulfur, in addition to the earth and water, usually associated with mercury. All these elements reported remain when the mercury turns to gold. He also rejected Tomas of Bologna's association of the planets with alchemical process. Yeah, so I think one interesting thing to note here is we're talking about something about 1380 when I just said he was born in 1406. So just, you know, we'll just roll with it. Keep that in mind. This is we lose yeah we lose a little bit of, uh, of the fuzziness the the mist of history when it yeah. comes to these because as you're saying Travis it's very possible there might be some pseudo Travises out there that that could be a problem. Well, I I don't see a problem seeing a negative twenty six year old man writing a letter. Never mind. <laughs> um, so Travison heard that Henry, a German priest, had succeeded in creating the philosopher's stone. So he went to Germany. Um, first, first among many, many travels, by the way, as you know, has, he has in common with many other alchemists. But so he went to Germany, accompanied by a small group of other alchemists. And this German alchemist Henry claimed he would disclose all if they would supply a certain sum of money to procure the necessary tools and material. Um, yeah, we've come across this before too. So um, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert here. Henry was a fraud. So yeah, Henry was a charlatan and uh, basically took off with his money or at least didn't, didn't come up with any gold quickly. So Trevisan decided to abandon his search in Germany, but he didn't give up completely. He ended up going to Spain, Great Britain, Holland, France, trying in each of these countries to you know, learn more about the Philosopher's Stone. Eventually, he really branched out. He went to places like Egypt, Persia, Palestine, Greece, the Baltics, um, Vienna, Turkey, Cyprus. So he's kind of, you know, on the path of past alchemists trying to look for, um, and I think it was pretty a pretty good path, actually, as we've seen in other episodes, but um, to find hints of, of alchemy and, and see what he can learn. He worked with minerals and natural salts using distillation and crystallization methods borrowed from Jabir ibn Hayyanad Muhammad ibn Zakira al-Razi, or... Al-Razi. Al-Razi, as we call him, right? Yeah, uh, who've done a show on, if you're interested. And when these failed, he turned to vegetable and animal material, finally using human blood and urine. Um, not that uncommon, really. And he gradually sold his wealth to buy secrets and hints toward the stone. Now, again, most um, most often from charlatans. So he he lost quite... Not, a, not to mention the traveling itself was expensive, but um, he kept 
kind of getting swindled and uh, left, lost more and more of, a, of his family's fortune along the way. Ultimately, Trevisan found himself impoverished and was forced to sell his uh, parental estates. He retired to the island of Rhodes and met with a priest who knew something of science. Trevisan proposed that they would start fresh new experiments together. The cleric agreed to help, and so the pair borrowed a large sum of money to purchase the necessary paraphernalia. The two found some success doing this uh, together as a team. In Rhodes, he kept working with the Philosopher's Stone until his death in 1490. He is believed to have been influential on the works of Gilles de Ray in the 1430s. Of course, if that sounds familiar, that's one of our shows we did on Gilles de Ray. A very interesting person, to say the least. Yeah. Right? Child murderer and companion in arms of Joanne d'Arc. So, uh, very dark guy. Dark, yeah, dark. Good broad CV. <laughs> broad CV there. Really uh, good resume. <laughs> yeah, so t- to talk about his, his works a little bit or, or his legacy or um, kind of his reputation after his death. Again, so his, his doctrine that the Philosopher's Stone by Mercury alone or could or couldn't be created by Mercury alone, but, but his thoughts on it was reiterated in the tracts that were printed under his name much later in the 16th and 17th century. Um, and for instance, a singular treatise on the Philosopher's Stone and in the Tracte de la Nature de l'Oeuvre. In the later, Bernard asserted that the elixir is made of pure mercury and that this purified substance, which has lost all of its terrestrial and consumable feces, which the philosophers call the, the water of volatility, contains within itself the entire magisterium. So, like other alchemists in the 14th century, um, he kind of compared the Philosopher's Stone to human generation. So basically, if the sun is male and hot the, and dry, the moon is female and cold and moist, both are essential because nothing can be generated and brought to the light of existence without both male and female. So... Um, we, we've heard that before. So he, he believes that just within mercury alone, um, mercury contains all of those substances. So like male and female, or um, another way to put it, or another way he put it was like mercury compa- contains both body and spirit, or fixed and volatile elements, um, even though they don't appear to be so, are indeed in one substance, i.e. quicksilver, mercury, right? Well, furthermore, Travis, to demonstrate or explain the alchemical process here, Bernard utilized another symbol commonly found in the alchemical literature of the time. He likened the mercury of philosophers to the philosopher's egg, Mm -hmm. which contained in itself two natures in one substance, which I think you can see, the white and the yellow. And from its other producer uh, produces another, the chicken, of course, in the embryonic uh, state, which has life and and the power of generation. Mercury, he held, similarly contains within its two natures in the one body from its, itself produces a whole that is that has body, soul, and spirit. Moreover, in the authority of Al- Albertus Magnus, whom he cited for the preceding exposition of the philosopher's egg as one and of many, Bernard likened the oneness of spirit, soul, and body to the Holy Trinity, who are one in God without diversity of substance. In his view, Mercury, the egg, contains itself everything required for the perfection of its own magisterium, without the addition of anything else and without any diminution of its own perfection. It has everything for the production of the chicken. So, Travis, you can see here that he's actually mixing a little bit of what the the very difficult concept in in Christianity of the Holy Trinity to what he sees in this alchemical process. 
Yeah, so you're saying you need more than one part, but yeah, it's still, it's all in one thing, like the Trinity. And, um, which, is, which is a story that basically broke the church apart. I mean, he's, he's really kind of yeah. putting it all together, but this actually was a schism at one yeah. point during his, in his life expectancy. Yeah, it's also kind of interesting that, he, that they say, okay, so there's, you can have one substance with two natures, um, like the yellow or, yellow or white of the egg, or that the egg creates a chicken and the chicken creates an egg. That's, that's kind of weird. But but yeah, you know, sure. They're they're deep, you know, very deep stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I wonder which one came first, by the way. Um, in any case, the works bearing Bernard's name also reveal, they also reveal his acquaintance with a number of other alchemical writers, several of whom we've talked about on the show, um, including Geber, as we've mentioned, Razis, as we've mentioned, but also Avicenna, Morienos, who we've just recently talked about, Hermes, and then. Also, Albertus Magnus, we've done a show on. Thomas Aquinas, he's, he's on the list. I don't think we've done him yet. Arnold of Villanova, who we've definitely done a show on. And even his brother, Pierre of Villanova, who I've never really talked about. Um, as well as Hortulanos and Raymond Lull, who's one of my favorites. Um, John Dustin, Christopheros Parisiensis. And also, Bernard paraphrased uh, Hippocrates' aphorisms and cited Aristotle and Galen. So kind of, you know, a wide range of uh, influences and, you know, kind of a, a well-studied man, I'd say. It kind of it kind of amazes me here, Travis, that uh, during this time period that you, you would be hard-pressed not to rub elbows with somebody on the street that might have an alchemical background. Uh, seems like. So it seems yeah. like they're just everywhere at this point. And, uh, but I think a lot of these guys were looking for each other. They knew of each other, either had some bad feelings with, about each other or... Uh, admired the, each other's works. So I think everybody kind of knew them in their inner circles, and, and um, I think a lot of it was fed off of each other, a lot of this information. Yeah. So it's also kind of funny that he got suckered so many times. Like if he, You would think he'd probably he probably the first or second yeah, time. It was you a know? quick study. Okay. But yeah. yeah, another interesting thing about him, that um, there's, there's always two parts of the alchemical debate, and, whether, and, and it's usually whether the alchemist believes that it should be secret hidden knowledge or whether it's okay to be published. Most people fall on the side of it's kind of uh, dangerous, dangerous knowledge or it can be abused and it's best to kind of keep it on the down low and use a lot of symbols and codes. Trevisan was not one of those. So he actually believed that um, it was dangerous to keep it secret because it could actually, you know, it was a really noble art or science and it could actually be lost. So he was actually for sharing it with others and, you know, reproducing works and in, in pretty plain language. And I, th- I think it was, uh, maybe this is my, my opinion, but I think uh, we see that a lot that especially the alchemists that believe in this, that like creating, making the, the knowledge public are the ones that are then sought after in later centuries. Because if the alchemist was, I mean, this is common sense, I guess, but if the alchemist was too good at keeping it a secret, no one ever knew of his name. I mean, no one ever heard of the guy. Because well, he, di- he disappears in history through the midst of time. I, yeah. I, I think that... Or his have, writings are so obscure in code that someone looks at it and goes, what is this gibberish? Well, you know, I also have to think about his background, too. I mean, he came from... Uh, he kind of had a different tract than a lot of other, uh, you know, al- alchemists that we've talked about because his family was well-to-do. He and didn't his, have... his dad was a doctor. And, and they, a promote, they yeah. promoted it. Basically, they, they encouraged him to be open about what his studies were. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that's kind of rare to yeah. talk about, so, right? So, yeah, I mean, so Trevis, Trevisan did um, have a pretty 
big influence in the 16th, 17th, even up to the 18th century. And uh, I mean, he's mentioned in, in several of the books that, that I have at home. In your library. library. <laughs> uh, I knew it. I knew it. Um, so, and I, and I think part of that is, again, just because he wrote stuff down and, and didn't hide his meaning as much. In one of those books, actually, um, I believe I got it from the Alchemist, from the Alchemy Reader. Um, there, there were some snippets of some of his works. And so I read through that. And uh, again, some of, the, some of the things that popped out at me, which we talked about before, was um, his emphasis of soul and luna, like the sun and, and moon, male and female. And then again, like male is hot and dry, female is cold and moist, or, you know, the, op- the opposite between fire and water. And um, the, there's a very typical alchemical uh, recipe in there. Like he, he starts off with the four colors, like black, white, yellow, red, which is the, you know, the four stages, basically. Talks about sulfur and mercury and what it means. There's some hermetic stuff in there. Like he mentions as above, so below. Um, he talks about squaring of the circle and this is basically all in one paragraph. So he really just covers all the bases very quickly. And then um, he also mentions it takes a year to make a perfect stone, which, you know, we've come across before. And when it's ar- argent vive, when it's dry, so this is the, the material, argent vive, and when it's dry, it's silver. And when it grows red, they call it gold. But to him, this was all the same substance. So you could make silver and gold out of the same thing. Um, which actually we've come across before that you, you have, you have one material and if you just keep it as is, it's silver. And if you bury it in dung for 40 days, it turns to gold. So, you know, yellows, I guess. Um, he, he also had, Travis, he has a lot of, uh, a lot of viewpoints too about how this process should go. And part of the, that he is in his written works, uh, focus on the importance of meditation and how yep. meditation basically, uh, will help the scientists. It's actually not help, but is necessary for that, for that uh, alchemist to uh, create the philosopher's stone or at least get close to it. So mm-hmm. um, we see a little bit of the science. We see a little bit of the religious. We see a little bit of the kind of uh, ethereal sort of concept about meditation and, and connecting to, to the nature to be yeah. able to make the philosopher's stone. He's, he's all one, in, one big uh, uh, you know, encapsulated sort of uh, a, a person of thought. And I think that really is something that many alchemists were, were able to connect with. I, I've, yeah, I see it. I find it very easy to believe that he was an influence later on because he was so 14th or I would say most likely 15th century um, that then he was, you know, a century before the golden age or a century and a half. And very easy to see that someone could read his easy to understand language and see basically all aspects of 17th, 18th century alchemy in, in one author and just, you know, start from there. So very interesting person to take a look at. I've been wanting to get to him for, for quite some time. And, um, yeah, it was kind of interesting to research. Once I got past the three or so Trevisans that he was not, and even then there was probably, there could have been more than one that was Italian alchemist with the same name over two centuries. Hard to say for sure, but, um, yeah, there you have it. So thanks for listening. I would like to thank the people that reviewed us on iTunes because I didn't know that was happening because we're in Czech Republic and we have the iTunes store connects us to the Czech yeah, iTunes. Yeah, and not to, not to North America. Yeah, yeah. and I, I was, in, I was uh, in Costa Rica and it connected me to whatever it is, iTunes.com or whatever instead. I mean, it's through the iTunes store. 
And suddenly I saw a bunch of five-star reviews and a bunch of great ratings. And I was like, oh, people were doing that. Nice. So thank you very much. And, and um, maybe surprisingly or not, I don't know, but people have been buying the book too. So thank you to those guys. And the title um, of the book is? The Alchemist Reader. You can find it on Amazon. If you bought it, Please provide feedback, good or bad. I think even bad bad feedback helps in the in the uh, Amazon ratings. I I hope. Um, but honestly, I'd love to hear from you. Or if if you're one of the guys that that bought my book, um, I know it's very short. It's like I don't know twenty thirty pages. It's really just meant as an as an introduction to alchemy. But if you bought it and read it, I would I would love to hear what you think. And and even more appreciated if you actually rate it on iTunes. That that does us a huge favor. So thank you very much. Right. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.